want to thank the worship team. They do such an amazing job. Um, They're extremely musically gifted. God's given the ability, and they're using that ability to minister to the body of Christ. It's not just the musical ability, but the words behind it. Um, just one little thing that popped in my head this morning. It was right there at the beginning on the, when we came in. It's, we sang, Our God Saves, and we, say, we sang it, Our God Saves, a, a bunch of times. At the last song, it says, You've broken every chain, there's salvation in your name. Jesus Christ, our living hope. That name, Jesus, means the Lord saves. It literally means our God saves. And I think that's amazing that this is one of those things that we repeat, and I hope it leaves here with you and sticks with, the, sticks with you through the week. We all get those songs that get stuck in our head, and they haunt us through the week. This is good stuff. I hope it's in there. I hope it sinks in, and I hope it comes back throughout the week. That's kind of where I wanted to go anyway. Because that's how we learn stuff. We learn stuff through repetition. Okay, it doesn't matter if it's the chorus to a song, throwing a baseball, dance steps, or multiplication facts. We all learn through repetition. Um, I can still remember back to middle school, sixth grade with Miss Finnell over at Seabury Middle School. And she said many times, is over of equals percent over 100. That's how you find percent of a number. And I still use that today. I remember Sebring High School uh, chemistry with Mr. Phillips. Do, are there any Sebring High School guys who remember? Mr. You remember Mr. Phillips? Okay. And he would say, he would say, grams to moles, moles to grams. Grams to moles, moles to grams. Now, I don't know what that means. <laughs> but I do know that what it means and how to use it could be found in chapter two, people. That's where it was, chapter two, people. You don't have to know everything. You just need to know where to look. Okay, I spent 15 years in education, and I'm guilty of using repetition, too. When I was in my last year, I was teaching pre-algebra to eighth graders, and we used this formula. This is the slope-intercept formula, y equals mx plus b. And what you would do is you would use this formula to take abstract numbers and letters and convert them to a concrete form that you could use on a graph like this. Now, there are two types of people in this room right now. There's one group that sat there, saw the y equals mx plus b, and saw those numbers, and they started doing the calculations, and they tried to picture that graph in their head. Then the other group experienced a little bit of nausea. <laughs> the laughter tells you which group who was in, okay? But if there's important information that needs to be grasped, repetition works. Okay? And God does the same thing in Scripture. I want you to turn to Psalm 136. I want you to turn to Psalm 136. So if you crack your Bible open to about the middle, you're going to hit Psalms, and you can find 136. Psalm 136. I'm going to read through a couple of these, and I'm going to see if you can't pick up on, on a theme that God is going for here. So Psalm 136. This is going to sound a lot like what uh, Pastor Jordan read to us this morning as he was getting ready for the, the intro. It says, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, 
for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him alone who does great wonders, for his steadfast love endures forever. Now, if you're like me, I'd start scanning ahead to see how the rest of this thing plays out. And if you go through and look at the rest of this psalm, what are you going to notice repeated? For his steadfast love endures forever. It's actually repeated about 26 times in this psalm. So when I see this repetition, I'm thinking, well, I I go back to my educational state. If it's said in class, it's fair game for the test. If it's repeated more than once, it's probably going to be on the test. So this is, uh, this is my mindset. It's like, well, God wants me to get something from this. What is it? This is probably the beginning of the summer that I'm going through this, this motion. We end up going to Mexico this summer, and we have devotions with Phil Steiner. He's, uh, he's the leader down there with Be to Live. And our devotional topic was, he called it sticky love, but it was steadfast love. So this term had followed me from Florida, it followed me down to Mexico, and I'm thinking, oh, well, I can't get away from this one, so I better figure out what it means. Well, Phil says, it is this word. I don't know what that means. Okay, well, I did some research, and I found out that that word is a Hebrew word that is hesed. Say it with me, hesed. Okay, you're going to hear that a bunch of times today, hesed. Okay, you don't have to repeat it every time. I'm just going to make you do it one more time, because if you want to say it the way that they would say it in Hebrew, you'd say chesed. Good. Now we all have our throats cleared and we can talk. Okay. It still doesn't mean a whole lot to us, but I'm going to give us a working definition for today. The working definition we're going to go with today is, when the person from whom I have the right to expect nothing gives me everything. When the person from whom I have the right to expect nothing gives me everything or giving to the undeserving everything, okay? However you want to word that. Now, most of the time, this is is used, speaking of God in relation to his people, Israel. Sometimes it talks about uh, the hesed of people, but it's usually contrasted with God's hesed. God's is enduring forever. Man's hesed, this steadfast love, this giving to the undeserving everything, is weak and failing. But compared to God's, His steadfast love is relentless, pursuing, even reckless. So what we're going to look at today is this has said. So Father, be with us this morning. Help us to pay attention to what it is you're saying to us in Scripture. When you repeat something, help us to focus in on it. Help us to understand what this has said is, this steadfast love, this giving to everyone who, everything to those who deserve nothing. Help us to guide our minds and thoughts into your thoughts and help us to apply this in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So this word is used 248 times in the Old Testament. You know why it's not used in the New Testament? This is Hebrew. The New Testament is written in Greek. So this one's not used in the New Testament. Okay, but 128 of these times, it's used in the Psalms. It really became the national motto of Israel. We have, in God we trust, they had his steadfast love endures forever. Um. Again, ours is weak in comparison with him. So what I'd like to do is I would like to show you that God is said. It's part of his character. I want you to turn with me to Exodus 34. Exodus 34. Going back to the second book of the Bible, Exodus. We're going to go to 34. But before we do that, I want to set the stage. You go ahead and flip there. I want to set the stage for this. Exodus 34. 
The Old Testament is not just a collection of old stories that don't apply to Christians anymore. No, it's, it's actual history of God's sovereign hand moving through time to redeem his people. He did that in the Old Testament. It was setting the stage for us in the New Testament. That's exactly who he is. And it's something that we should use today too. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 says that this stuff, talking specifically like Exodus to Judges, was written for our learning so that we may not desire evil like they did. So there's actual application to this Old Testament stuff. It's not just something that you should leave on the shelf. It's something we can use today. So this is the stage. Exodus 34, right before this, Israel had just left 400 years of Egyptian slavery. How'd they get out of it? Ten miraculous plagues, one right after another, to show that the God of Israel was greater than the gods of Egypt. They leave Egypt with all of their wealth. About two million people walking out through the desert. They find themselves hemmed in against the Red Sea, and God makes a way. He makes the water stand up as a heap on the, on the, uh, as a wall on the right and on the left, and they pass through on the dry ground. The blitzkrieg of Pharaoh's pursuing chariots are following after them. They follow him down into the sea. After Israel's made it all the way across, the water comes back and covers Pharaoh and his army. That's the, that's the occasion of the first song in Scripture. They sing a song of rejoicing that Pharaoh and his army has been, has been thrown into the sea. God saved them miraculously. So they just saw this miraculous provision of God. They find themselves wandering in the desert. About three days later, they're like, oh, man, we are thirsty. There's no water out here. God, did you bring us out here out of Egypt to die of thirst in the desert? He just saved them, and now they're complaining. Who's been on a long trip with kids in the car? Okay, you know where I'm going. So uh, he provides water, miraculously provides water for two and a half million people. A couple days later, we're hungry. We're hungry. That's a, that is a big problem to feed that many people. So God miraculously provides manna from heaven. And they eat this manna. It's supposed to taste like wafers of honey. And they eat it and they eat it. And then, then all of a sudden they start whining and complaining again. God... We ate all sorts of meat in Egypt. Why wouldn't we just stay in Egypt? We can go have all the meat we want. So God miraculously provides quail. So for 40 years, six days a week, God is providing manna and quail for these undeserving people. He's given them everything they need, need for life, and he's providing it for them. They make their way to this mountain. Moses ascends this mountain because God tells him, go up this mountain. God gives him the most direct revelation of himself that humanity has ever had up until this point. Two tablets of stone with the Ten Commandments. It's God's holy standard for his people. He's up there for 40 days. He hears a noise, comes down the mountain. He finds Israel worshiping a golden calf. Okay, this is the same thing they left in Egypt. They're, they got saved miraculously, fed miraculously, and now they turn their back and they worship this idol. Moses gets mad, slams the tablets on the ground, they break. Then he has to go deal with the people. Takes that statue, grinds it up into powder, makes the people drink it. Several people die that day because of their rebellion. All those people could have justly been wiped out by God, and he could have started over with Moses. But that's not who God is. This is what's setting the stage for where we're going to read here right now. So Moses goes back up the mountain 
and has this conversation with God. Uh, Follow me right there. Exodus 34, we're going to look at verse 6 and 7. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. This is hesed. You're going to hear me switch out the word hesed and steadfast love throughout this. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in hesed and faithfulness, keeping hesed for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Guys, we sang this this morning. Do you remember hearing that? You're rich in love and slow to anger. That's where it came from. This is our God. When you see the the Lord written like that with all the capitals, that's God saying, this is my name. Jehovah, Yahweh, that's my name. This is who I am. Gracious, slow to anger, abounding in hesed, keeping hesed to thousands, forgiving iniquity and sin. That's who he is. God is hesed. About 400 years later, David would write of this hesed in the Psalms. I'm going to put the Psalms up here. You don't need to go there, but I'm going to, I'm going to put the basis. If you, I encourage you to write some of these down. You can go check them out later. You can, again, it's, it's written all over the Psalms. Uh, Psalm 13, 5, he says, I have trusted in your hesed, your steadfast love. My heart will rejoice in your salvation. He's saying, look, I believe you, God. I take you at your word. You are the one who gives to the undeserving everything. I'm going to trust in that for my salvation. I trust in your said, My heart will rejoice in your salvation. Psalm 25, 7. Remember not the sins of my youth or the transgressions. According to your said, the way that you, forgive, you give to those who deserve nothing, everything, according to that, remember me for the sake of your goodness. He says, I'm, I deserve nothing, but remember me according to your steadfast love, your said. Psalm 63, 3. Because your said is better than life, my lips will praise you. Your said is better than life. The way that you give to those who deserve nothing, everything, that's better than life. You see, God is said, And it's not just these couple of, of phrases here. You can see, this is where we're, we're told that that's who he is, but we can see him doing this through Israel's history. I'm going to bring up a couple of examples. I think about Jacob. Remember Jacob and Esau, the twin brothers? Jacob is an example of God's has said. You see, he stole his brother's birthright. He's a thief. He's a manipulator. He worked out situations for his own good at the cost of other people. He was a polygamist. He had four wives. But God says, out of you, I'm going to make my nation. I'm actually going to name him after you, Jacob, Israel. That's the God has said. He had nothing. He deserved nothing, but God gave him everything. I think about Joseph and his brothers. Right now on Wednesday nights, we're talking and we're going through the life of Joseph. You remember the beginning of this, this story? His brothers sold him into slavery and left him for dead. 20-something years later, they come up to, to Joseph in Egypt and Joseph's in the perfect position to take revenge on, the, on his brothers. I'm going to tell you, I, I'm, I may not have the same restraint that Joseph had. But those guys deserve nothing. But God, through Joseph, gave them everything. They came for food when the world was in famine. They got food, and they had a place to live. They were welcomed into Egypt, their whole families. They were given everything. 
he keeps going. Do you remember the story about Ruth and Boaz? Ruth was, Ruth was a foreigner. So you've got Israel here. She was a foreigner. She's down here. She's a woman. She's down here. And she was a widow. She was kind of at the, the bottom rung of society. She was a nobody who deserved nothing from anybody. That's probably like a quadruple negative or something, but <laughs> I have to go back and see if that made sense. Okay, so she's, she's really at the bottom. She comes, she comes to Israel for food. And a guy named Boaz sees her working in the field and says, who is that? Does she belong to anybody? I want her for me. She deserved nothing, but Boaz gave her everything. Not just food and a place to stay, but something even greater than that. You can go to Matthew and Luke and you'll find her in Jesus' lineage. She got included in that line. She had, was worthy of nothing, but God gave her everything. I'll give you another one. Hosea and Gomer. You know that story? Hosea was a prophet sent to, to bring God's word to his people, but God says, you know what? I'm gonna, I need a, uh, a visual aid, and I'm going to use you. I want people to understand my love for them, my faithfulness, my hesed for my people. So I want you to go marry Gomer. That sounds like a nice love story until you find out that Gomer was a, a prostitute, a harlot. Go marry her because I want you to show that even, and I want you to be faithful to her too. Even though my people are faithless, I'm still gonna love them. You're still gonna love Gomer and I want them to see that in your life. You can look at history too. Israel had that revelation from God. They had, they had the prophets. They had Moses. They had the law. They had kings. They had people that, that God put in their line, but they continued to rebel against God. So he sent the Assyrians, and they took out the 10 northern tribes of Israel, 722 B.C. 586 B.C., the Babylonians come in and take, take out Judah. But he was faithful and brought them back brought him back to the land. He didn't forget. He was letting them take care of business out of town. His steadfast love endures forever. The Greeks would come in and overtake them. That's about 333 BC. They come in. Then the Romans, we're talking like 100 BC, and they had enough. They said, you're done. 70 AD, they burned down the temple, tear it down, and they dispersed them throughout the Roman Empire. You can't be a people if we disperse you. But they did something. They stayed together. They kept their language and they kept their culture. God's steadfast love was going to continue moving on through history for his people. 1,900 years later, this, this people has, has gone without a, a nation to call their own. About 1920, 1930, you have a guy rise up named Adolf Hitler. And he starts persecution, blaming everything on them, trying to eradicate the world of the Jewish people. But God's steadfast love would keep moving forward. 
When the world found out about the atrocities that took place in a, in a concentration camp, that six million Jews and six million others were murdered on a wholesale level, compassion of the world turned. It said, this was wrong. So the land that used to be called Palestine for 1,900 years in a day became the nation of Israel, May 15, 1948. Just as prophesied out of the Old Testament, the nation, it became a nation again in a day. God was faithful. His said endures forever. So this brings us to the New Testament. We mentioned that God is said, that he is steadfast love. He is the one who gives to the undeserving everything. We have the right to expect nothing from him, but he gives everything. So if God is said and Jesus is God, become flesh and made his living among, dwelling among us, what should we expect to see out of the life of Jesus? Has said. We should see has said. And I'm going to tell you, if you look at his life and his teachings, that's exactly what you're going to see. I'm going to bring up a couple. You're welcome to take notes or turn there to follow along if you'd like to. Uh, but it's worth going back to look at. I'm going to start with John chapter 4. John chapter 4, we have the woman at the well. This woman was a Samaritan. Samaritans were considered half-breeds. They were, had some Jewish lineage, but they kind of intermarried with foreign nations. They took on some of their, their foreign gods and mixed it with the Hebrew religion, so they had this kind of weird mesh of spiritual stuff going on. They were half-breeds, idolaters. The Jewish people would not interact with them. People would walk all the way around Samaria to not have to walk through it. But Jesus made a direct path. He says, no, I have to go here. He walks into this town of Samaria, and he doesn't stop there. There's a woman at the well in the middle of the day. There's only one reason why that woman would be there in the heat of the day, because no one else wanted to be around her at the time. She was an outcast. But God pursued her. Goes to her. And they have a conversation. When the disciples come up, they're actually shocked that he's talking to her. Why are you talking to her? She's a Samaritan. In this conversation with Jesus, she brings up her false religious beliefs. They also talk about her relationships. Hey, go get your husband. I don't have a husband. You're right in saying you had no husbands. You've had five. And the one you're with now is not your husband. Did this woman deserve anything? Samaritan, false religious beliefs, adulterous relationships. What does Jesus offer? Has said, living water that springs up to eternal life. That's what he gives her. She believes and receives eternal life. Another one, Luke Turn to Luke 15. This is the story of the prodigal son. You know this story. Guy has two kids. He must have been somewhat well off. One of the sons says, Dad, I want my inheritance now. What he's saying is, Dad, I wish you were dead so I can have your stuff. That's, ex- that's exactly what's communicated to Dad in this, in this passage. But Dad loves him. Verse 12, he's, uh, Luke, 
Luke 15, verse 12, he says, and he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and journeyed to a far off country and he squandered his property on reckless living. He blew it all. Everything dad had to give him. He finds himself slopping pigs, which is, again, lowest of the low for this little Jewish guy. Swine were unclean animals. To be in, this, in, the, in the hog's trough was low. Verse 17, he says, But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's servants have more than enough to eat? But I perish here with hunger. I'm going to arise and go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. What did this kid deserve? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. He had already taken everything and blew it. Verse 20. Uh, and he arose and came to his father. And while he was still a long way, a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said, Father, I've sinned against, against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet, bring the fatted calf. Let's eat and celebrate for my son was dead and is alive again. That father gave him everything. He deserved nothing, but the father gave him everything. That's said. John chapter 13. You got the uh, Last Supper. Jesus had just washed everybody's feet, taking the lowest of the low spot, showing how, it even says, showed him how the extent of his love, showed him how much he loved them. Then Jesus says, one of you will betray you. And Peter, in regular Peter fashion, stands up in front of all his friends and says, all of these guys might fall away, but not me. And Jesus says, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. Oof. We know the story. We know what happens. Jesus is arrested, taken to trial. In his moment of need, when he, when he would love to have someone step in and help, Peter denies. Not to a high authority, but to a low-ranking servant girl in the dark. Actually, when you read that passage, it says he cursed her. Probably something like, I don't blank know him like uses an expletive word to get her away. I don't know him. Sure you do. No, I don't. But you know how the story ends too. Denies him three times. When we get to John 21, the one who sold him out, I guess he didn't betray him, but he didn't, he didn't come to his aid, didn't even recognize that he knew him. Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. He deserved nothing, but he restored him. He brought him back in. Jesus is getting nailed to the cross. As they're driving the nails in, you know what he says? Forgive them, for they know not what they do. Then you have the thief that's standing, who's on the cross right next to him. Well, there's, there's a thief and a murderer. One of them says, hey, we deserve to be here. Or he says, hey, if you're God, save yourself. The other one calls out, hey, we deserve to be here. 
we're getting what we deserve, but this guy did nothing. Peter, or Jesus, when you enter your kingdom, will you remember me? He, he, by his own admission, he says, I deserve to be here. I deserve to die. Based on the way that God has given everything to those who deserve nothing, he's saying, remember me. The guy didn't have any chance to go do any good works, get baptized, nothing. He says, I will, today you will be with me in paradise. The guy did nothing, deserved nothing, but God gave him everything. You'll be with me in paradise. That's a pretty great promise. Paul, this guy was trying to earn his salvation. I'm the Hebrew of Hebrews. I checked all the boxes. I did everything right. I'm zealous for you. He had permission from the elders of the land to go arrest, flog, kill Christians. Deserved nothing. Jesus knocks him blind and calls him to himself. Gives him everything. That's a said. That's a said. And that's exactly the life that Jesus lived. He lived a life of a said. Now, Jesus was a, was a Jewish guy. He probably spoke Hebrew, probably spoke Greek, because a lot of people spoke Greek back then, and Aramaic. And all of his, all of his disciples probably spoke Hebrew when he's with them. You and I don't speak Hebrew, which is a problem. They thought in Hebrew, but wrote it out in Greek. So when it comes to translating this word said into a word that we can use, there was some difficulty. There's a guy, uh, William Coverdale, I think he was involved in writing the King James Bible back in 1535. He had to make up a word to fit this. To fit this, has said, there's not really an English equivalent word to this, so I need to make something up so that we can understand it. We can wrap a meaning around this. You know what word he comes up with? We sang it this morning. Loving kindness. It was in Living Hope. I don't know, I don't remember the verse, and I'm not going to sing it to you and punish you like that, but that'll be my said towards you. As I'm not going to give. <laughs> okay. But the loving kindness. That is his said. When you come across that word steadfast love, when you come across that word loving kindness, think has said. So you remember how I had that formula to move the abstract letters and numbers to a concrete representation on a graph? That's the same thing we're going to do here. We have an abstract word of has said, and we need to move it into a concrete representation that we can use in the English language for us today. So how can we do that? Well, I would probably want to go to the best person who is reliable on the source of what this word meant, which would be Christ. What did he say this word meant? He actually, he actually quotes this word from the Old Testament. If you go, uh, I'm going to put this one up here so you don't have to go there. If you go to uh, Hosea 6.6, 6, um, I'm not going to make you go there, but Hosea 6.6, 6, um, again, this is the prophet that we had mentioned earlier. He's calling out the people of his day. These people would go to the temple and go and make all their sacrifices, but go live like hell the rest of the week. I can get away with it if I just give enough money to the temple. But I'm going to do what I want to do. 
But Jesus, uh, but Hosea says this to the leaders of the land. He says, for I desire steadfast love is what mine says. I desire hesed, not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Jesus quotes this. I want you to flip to Matthew chapter nine. I want you to see this. It's not me. This is what Jesus said this word means. Matthew chapter nine. And we're gonna look at, start at verse 12. So this is, this is the account of Jesus eating with, with all the tax collectors and sinners. Remember this? Okay, he, he, uh, Matthew gets saved and he, he says, Jesus, come eat at my house. And he brings all of his friends in who are, again, some of the lowest of the lows. Why is this guy eating with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus replies this in verse 12. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire what does he say? Mercy and not sacrifice. I came to call the righteous, not the sinners. When Jesus is talking about has said, it's mercy. This is giving to those who deserve nothing, everything. This is mercy. And you can see this here. You remember the story of the Good Samaritan. I know we're, we're hitting a lot of different stories, but I want you to see it. Okay, the, the story of the Good Samaritan. The guy's going from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he gets jumped by a bunch of robbers. They beat him up and leave him for dead. A priest just happens to walk by and crosses to the other side of the road so he doesn't have to mess with them. A Levite just happens by and goes on the other side of the road so he doesn't have to mess with them. But then a Samaritan comes up. He picks him up, puts him on his animal, treats his wounds, takes him to an inn and puts him there at the inn and says, take care of him. If there's any other cost, I will pay it back. What did this near dead guy on the road deserve? Nothing. What did that Samaritan show him? Everything. He gave him life back. So at the end of this account, Jesus asked the Pharisees, which one of these men proved to be his neighbor. They didn't say Samaritan because they couldn't. They didn't, want to, they didn't want to say the Samaritan was worth giving any honor. Do you know what they said? Who knows? The one who showed mercy. The one who showed mercy. Then Jesus cuts him again. He says, now go and do likewise. Go and give to those who deserve nothing, give them everything. So, brings up two questions. Have you ever experienced has said? Have you ever experienced that mercy? I'm going to tell you, if you've placed your trust in Christ, then yes, you have. Back in January, we went, we went through the book of Ephesians, right? We spent a, a lot of time in there, a lot of time. Ephesians chapter 2 says, you were dead in your sins and transgressions when you followed the way of the world. Dead. What do you deserve? Nothing. But you know what it says in verse 5? But God, according to his great mercy, made us alive in Christ Jesus. You've experienced mercy if you placed your trust in Christ, and you've been given everything. Ephesians chapter 1 says you have every spiritual blessing that's in Christ Jesus. 
It may not be money, gold, tangible things, but you've already got everything you need for life and godliness. Why would he do this? The only answer I can give is said. Giving to the undeserving everything, and that's who he is. Another good memory verse, if you want one, Titus 3.5. Titus 3.5. High schoolers, that's a spoiler alert for next week in Sunday school. Titus 3.5, he says, He saved us, not because of works done in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. That's why he did it. We bring nothing to the table, and he gives us everything. We don't have anything to offer in exchange. Have you gone and done likewise? I'm going to tell you, I'd, I'd, I'd be willing to bet that has said this mercy doesn't come natural to any one of us. In full transparency, I don't offer this has said to those people who do deserve it, let alone the people who don't deserve it. You know why? Because I'm busy. I can be selfish. It's going to take time. It's going to be messy. Yeah, it is. How do you think it was for a sinless person to come to this earth and walk among people like us for 33 years who would eventually turn on him and kill him? Yeah, that was messy. It took time. But why did he do it? His steadfast love, that has said, giving to those who deserve nothing, everything. Have you gone and done likewise? I think, about, uh, I think about that woman at the well. What did she do at the end of the story? She experienced mercy. This is the first thing she did. She says, she went to the whole town and says, come meet the man who told me everything I ever did. Everyone in the town already knew what she already did. They were probably involved in it. But, he's, but he gave me eternal life. Come hear him. She didn't wait to study up for six months or go to Bible school or anything like that before she started sharing the gospel. She said, come to this guy. Have you done likewise? Peter, denying Christ in the dark to a servant girl, a couple weeks later is standing out in public, boldly proclaiming the gospel to thousands of people who come to the Lord. What could be that change in the person? Yeah, the Holy Spirit was inside him, but only because he experienced mercy would he be willing to do it. That mercy should drive us. Paul, he experienced that mercy and he spent the rest of his life pouring it out for, for Christ all the way to the end. He went and preached the gospel to the people who hated it and they hated him for preaching it. Whipped within an inch of his life five times, beaten with rods three times, stoned. They chucked rocks at him till they thought he was dead, but he lived imprisoned twice. Why would he do that? He experienced his said, and it changed him. He couldn't help but to do it. It would cost him his life. She's going to the Muslim people. Aren't they the ones who attacked America? Aren't they the ones who beheaded Christians? Call us infidels? Yeah, yeah, they are. So how can she show love to these people who deserve nothing? Because she sees them the way God saw her and showed mercy. 
because she experienced that has said of God, it changed her. You see, God saw each one of us that way. We have all thought things, done things, said things that brought harm to our Heavenly Father. We deserve nothing but death, is what the Bible says. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. That's what we deserve. But he gives us everything. Eternal life in Christ Jesus. You finish Romans 6.23. He gives us everything in Christ Jesus. Eternal life. You want to know what that looks like when you get everything? Flip to 1 Peter chapter 1. We sang this this morning too. 1 Peter chapter 1. And I want you to look at verse 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. I hope that song is never the same for you. What do we get out of this? Through the resurrection of Christ from the dead, we get an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. That sounds like a whole bunch of everything to me especially for someone who deserves nothing. So how is the Lord going to draw these Muslim people to himself? Is it going to be effective for her to go there and say, you know, when you guys crashed those planes in those towers, it was wrong. When you cut those heads off, that was wrong. That's not what she's going to do. She's going to love those people. She's going to show his said. Because the Bible says this, James 2.13. I don't think I put it up there. James 2.13 says, mercy triumphs over judgment. Because when she loves these people, they know who they are. When she loves these people, they're not gonna have an explanation for why she's acting this way. And that's gonna create an inroad for the gospel. And the same thing goes for you and me. We all have people in our lives who fall into that category who deserve nothing from us. These could be the ones who've hurt you, ignored you, insulted you. How easy is it to talk to those people? I'm going to tell you, in prepping for this message, I was convicted about certain people who deserve nothing from me. They still have intrinsic value to God. They're still created in his image, and he wants... He, He paid a pretty big price to redeem those people. You know, it could be that homeless guy you see all the time. It could be that homosexual guy at work or school or in your family. You continue to show them, has said, God loves them. That's going to open the door for the gospel to get in and do do its work. So if we've experienced this has said, how can we keep it to ourselves? If you've truly been changed by God's mercy, it should flow out in your life. We looked at those examples that I mentioned earlier. What a change. Having experienced that mercy, we should be able to extend it to others. Now, you might be here in this room now, and you're hearing about this has said, this steadfast love of God, how he gives to those who deserve nothing, how he gives them everything. We have the right to expect nothing from him, but he gives us everything. Maybe you're thinking, I want that. 
Well, what you can do right now here in your seat, take advantage of that offer. You can pray something like this, even while I'm talking. If this is the thought of your heart, the words don't matter, but this is where you're going. If this is, is this your mindset? God, I know I'm a sinner. I know I deserve nothing. I know I'm separated from you. I've heard about your steadfast love. I heard about this has said how you give to those who deserve nothing, how you give them everything, and I want it. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I heard about this Jesus who is God, how he died in my place, how he rose again from the dead, and I believe it. The best I know how I'm placing my trust in him. What we say earlier, David, David wrote it down. He says, I've trusted in your said, and my heart will rejoice in your salvation. I've trusted. Now, if that's you, if you prayed that this morning, I can tell you on the authority of scripture, you've passed from death to life. I want, and if that's you, you should come down and talk to one of the men or one of the ladies down here up front at the end if you need assurance of your salvation. If you, if you need to talk more about it, let somebody know that you've experienced has said. But then there's the other half of us who may have made that decision at some point in the past. Have we gone and done likewise? I'm gonna encourage you to go do the same to literally be the hands and feet of Jesus out there, extending his mercy to others. So Father, we thank you for today. And thank you for your has said, your steadfast love for giving to those who deserve nothing, everything. Praying for those who may have made the decision this morning to, to place their trust in you and to, to call out for your has said, your steadfast love. I'm praying that they would have the courage to continue to grow in their faith, come up and talk to someone at the end. And then I'm praying for the other group that we would go and do likewise, not just nod our heads here on a Sunday morning and go do everything else we want to do during the week, but to literally be changed by said, by steadfast love, by mercy, and let it be evident in our lives. God, we are exhibit A of your mercy. Let us go live and do likewise. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.